Hey, before we get started, I want to thank five brand new podcast supporters. Alan Doty, Don Matthewson, Crit Moore, Laura Olson, and Betsy and Knox Morrison. And Betsy is actually my sister. So thank you very much, sis. Really appreciate it. Again, I thank you all so much for listening to the podcast, first of all, and those of you who have chosen to support it financially, it means a ton. Really, really appreciate it. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Sarah Dant. Sarah is a historian, professor, and chair of the history department at Weber State University. She's also the author of one of my new favorite books, Losing Eden, an Environmental History of the American West. Sarah's work touches on many of the topics we discuss regularly here on the podcast, including conservation, water, public lands, building consensus around divisive issues, historical figures of the West, and much more. As you'll hear in our conversation, Sarah has a unique ability to explain complex and sometimes dry topics regarding the American West in an engaging and easy-to-understand manner. Whether you're like me and have read dozens of books on the history of the American West or simply have a general interest in the subject, I think Losing Eden should be mandatory reading. It lays out the history of the region, starting with human migration into North America 15 to 30,000 years ago, and ends in the present-day West with our scramble to find solution to natural resource shortages and climate change. For me, the book connected many different time periods and concepts into one cohesive narrative, while simultaneously introducing me to new ideas and people, all in just under 200 pages. Sarah and I had a great conversation covering key concepts from her book, as well as her life as a historian, teacher, and lifelong Westerner. We chat about the concept of the tragedy of the commons, conservation versus preservation, and the myth that the West was a sort of Garden of Eden prior to European settlement. We also dig into some of the key historical figures of the West, including Brigham Young, John Wesley Powell, Theodore Roosevelt, and John Muir. Most of you know that I'm weirdly obsessed with Theodore Roosevelt. I've got a life-size cardboard cutout of him in my office, for Pete's sake. So Sarah gently offers a more balanced examination of his conservation legacy, which is probably good for all parties involved. We also discuss Sarah's upbringing in Arizona, her love of trail running, favorite books, and much more. Be sure to visit the episode notes for links to everything we discuss, because there's a lot. And since many of you are members of the Mountain and Prairie Book Club, I want to let you know that Losing Eden will be the November and December selection. Sarah has graciously offered to answer questions about the book or even participate in some sort of online discussion, so I'll be sorting out those details in the coming weeks. In the meantime, start reading the book and visit the book club webpage for more information as it becomes available. That's mountainandprairie.com slash book dash club. But now on with the podcast. Hope you enjoy this fun conversation with Sarah Dant. When you meet somebody for the first time, never met them, and they ask you that question, what do you do? How do you answer that? 
well, I tell people that I'm a professor of history and actually chair of the department at Weber State University, which is in Ogden, Utah. It's been my mission to make sure that people know how to pronounce Weber correctly because <laughs> the grill has long messed with us and made life difficult for us Weber folks. So I tell them that, but I also um, am a native Westerner, and I think that has really shaped in some ways my outlook. And I'm an outdoor enthusiast, have been my whole life. I've lived all over the West. So to me, this really is home. And where did you grow up? Where, where specifically in the West? I grew up in the Phoenix area, one of the many suburbs of Phoenix. I actually grew up in Mesa. And I grew up in Mesa in a time when it was a lot of orange groves and dairy farms. Mm -hmm. So to me, uh, having grown up in that part of the, the state and that part of the Valley of the Sun, I really associate it with smell. Um, you can put an orange blossom under my nose and I am instantly transported back to uh, where I grew up. But also the smell of the desert too, especially after a rain, creosote bushes, things like that. I mean, I, I really love it. I just read a book about orange, just completely about oranges by John McPhee. Have you read that book? I have not read that one, but I'm very familiar, of course, with McPhee. Oh man, it was so good. I, and I have such an appreciation for oranges now. <laughs> Um, well, I want to talk more about your background as well, but I want to also just get straight into your book because it is so good. And I was just telling you, we were just talking about that a bit before we started recording. And, you know, I've read a ton of, you know, books about the West, dozens and dozens. And I found that your book was just, just an amazing resource for putting all the many pieces together and it put it all together. But then it also taught me a lot of things that I didn't know. And I feel like, whether you're deep in it like I am or you're brand new to it, it's just a, a, a wonderful resource for a million different reasons. So great, great job on it. Thank you for, for producing such a, a, a resource for everybody. Gosh, thank you. I appreciate that. And that was definitely one of my intentions. Somebody asked me, you know, who did you write this book for once? And as a writer, that's something you should always keep in mind is who is your audience? And I, I was trying to think of a really eloquent way to say who I wrote it for, and I realized that who I wrote it for was someone like my dad, who is well-educated but doesn't necessarily know a lot about history or a lot about the environment, but is really interested and wants some help making connections and understanding how people and nature have interacted over time. And so I'm, I'm glad to hear that it sounds like it achieved that. It did. And I think it's one of those books that you read that, you know, it opens the door for about a hundred other books. And then you make it even easier because you have at the end of each chapter have the list of for additional reading. And so Amazon is going to make a lot of money uh, off of me, courtesy of you. So, <laughs> um, well, I guess maybe the, the easiest place to start on this is the title, Losing Eden. And can you just talk a little bit about the myth of North America as being Eden? And it seems like with every kind of generation, there's been this, this idea that the West was Eden. But when, in fact, it ever since us humans came over from Asia, it really hasn't been. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. In fact, the title was a, a suggestion from a, a reader when I was still in the process of writing the book. Um, I had some really generically boring title like 
an environmental history of the West. I was just going to call it that. And one of the readers for the book said, I hate this title. Uh, <laughs> you need to have something more interesting. Why You should call it Losing Eden. And I thought, I hate that title. That's a terrible title for a book. And I went for a run and I was up on the trails and here in the Wasatch and I was running and fuming about that whole suggestion. And then I realized, oh, no, 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 no. That's exactly the title that I want because it's what I want people to actually do when they read this book is lose the idea that the West was Eden. So it's definitely a double entendre. Um, and, and then I thought, oh, that's a great suggestion. Thanks so much. So, um, But I think for a lot of people, this land of milk and honey, a romanticized, nostalgic idea about what is the West has driven us to have a very unrealistic relationship with it for a very long time. And so my hope in titling the book this and then writing the book the way I did was to suggest to people, here's how we've interacted with this place for thousands of years, and it's not Eden, it's never been Eden, and the sooner we lose that idea that we should be somehow trying to get back to Eden, the, the better off we're going to be. We need to be thinking about how do we live sustainably here and now, not some nostalgic backward look. Yeah, that's a great, great, that's an excellent summary. And, you know, we could go into all the details, and I'll probably say this a hundred times, but people just need to to buy the book and read it because every chapter is just so full of really, really interesting and important info. Um, I think another good thing to cover just kind of right off the the bat is the idea of the tragedy of the commons because I think that's an issue or a, a concept that comes up throughout the book. And when I'm talking to people, you know, in my job about land conservation, I always reference that, and I'm always surprised at how few people um, know that concept. So could you just explain that and then kind of give an overview of how that applies to the West? Sure. So the idea of the tragedy of the commons is an outgrowth of an idea from an ecologist from the 1960s named Garrett Hardin. And what he said was that if we looked at a commons, and in this case, uh, the example he used was a grazing commons in an old English community where everyone in the community could graze a cow on the commons around the community. And so long as everyone did that and only that, it was sustainable and all could fare reasonably well. But if an individual decided to graze a second cow, in and of itself, that one addition wouldn't alter the commons. But the problem came, or as he called it, the tragedy, came when everyone made the same selfish decision, I'm just going to add one more cow. One cow doesn't change the commons, but everyone's one cow does. And the the consequence is then a destruction of the commons. And so Without getting into the legal aspects of defining commons or anything, I wanted to use that basic idea to think about the natural resources of the West as a commons. The water we share, the clean air we share, the trees, and the other natural resources. And and again, it's not that any one individual destroys a commons by seeking their own personal profit. It's the collective action that becomes so ultimately tragic in many situations. And I, I know you guys have the same thing there along the, the front range that we have here in the Wasatch, which is terrible inversion in the winter. Mm-hmm. 
And we have people who will say, oh, well, you know, my car isn't going to ruin the air. And they're right, uh, truly. Uh, but it's when everyone decides my car isn't going to ruin the air, everyone drives and we get the inversion. That's a good tragedy of the commons illustration. Yeah, that's a great a great one. And it's interesting because the West is such a fragile landscape and, you know, we're just kind of right on the edge all the time because of the, the aridness. And when you mix that with the Western kind of fake ideal of rugged individualism and everybody is out for their own and I have my land and I'm going to do what I, I want to do, it kind of makes for a, a bad cocktail um, is for, for the environment. And so – on the opposite end of the spectrum, and you dig into this in the book, is the Mormons and when they came out and settled. And they were the opposite in a lot of ways of rugged individualism. They're one of the few groups that came out this way and were focused on community and sharing and sharing resources. Can you just talk a little bit about the Mormons and when they came out and their impact on you know water resources and how they were able to you know irrigate such a large amount of land um, as a community? Sure. So, I mean, it's quite a fascinating and unique story in many ways. It, the, um, the full name is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and it, they are the outgrowth of a prophetic vision, a series of visions by Joseph Smith, the spiritual founder of the faith in the 1820s uh, in upstate New York. And he is having these visions right in the midst of the Second Great Awakening, very much part of a, a religious revival that's going on all, all up and down the eastern seaboard. And their trek from New York through um, Illinois, ultimately settling in Nauvoo, where they thought they were going to, they thought this was the place. Um, they were nevertheless usually very uh, insular, very exclusive, meaning that they didn't really mingle with their larger community. For good reason, they had experienced a lot of persecution. And so when Smith and his brother were murdered in 1844, there was a real sense of, of urgency on the part of the faithful who remained, that they needed to get outside of the United States. And in that very dark period, Brigham Young emerged to lead those who were still clinging to the faith outside of the United States. He had been reading um, the reports of Fremont, who had traveled in and around the Great Salt Lake, and decided, sight unseen, that's where we're going to go. And so um, starting in 1846 and ultimately arriving in the valley in 1847, the Mormons arrived here very much as a communal effort. The, the migration was church financed, church organized, church led. And when the people got to the valley, that sense of, of communalism really pervaded. Um, there's not individual ownership of property. The property is, is distributed based on a family's need and ability. Water was communally owned, again, by the church, distributed to those in need um, as they needed it. And it meant that at least as long as the, the Mormons remained a pretty small and tight-knit group, that was somewhat sustainable. Um, it's when we begin to see that breakdown, um, particularly 
you know, the, the Mormon timing is, is unfortunate. You want to get outside of the United States, you show up in the valley of, of the Great Salt Lake in 1847, and then in 1848, with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, bang, you're right back into the United States. Mm-hmm. So uh, that didn't last too long. But it did mean that, you know, that same year in, in 1848, gold was discovered in California. Salt Lake is the, the perfect way station for those headed west to the gold fields. And the commercial opportunities that were available began to, I think, in some ways, promote a more individualistic, secular ethos that began to erode the kind of communal organization that had worked so well. But at least for a time, as, as long as, as the church, and young in particular, hold sway and, and, and have authority in the region, it's a, it's a remarkably different kind of settlement than we see in other places. And so another major character that that comes up and was so influential is John Wesley Powell. And one of the books that so many of my guests recommend is Beyond the 100th Meridian. And, um, you know, I, I think he it seems that he saw or he did see the West in a way that was completely counter to the way just kind of the standard U.S. government or the the, the all the corporate interests saw it. You know, they saw it as a grid. He saw it as a series of, of watersheds. Could you just Give us a quick lesson on who John Wesley Powell is for people who don't know, and then how he thought about the West that was in complete a complete different way of, of seeing things. Sure. So John Wesley Powell had been um, involved in the Civil War. He was a veteran of the Civil War, lost his arm in the Battle of Shiloh. And he had gone West, as many had after the war, Um, trying to sort of make sense of the world around them. And Powell is the one who pioneers going down the Grand Canyon, um, unknown Grand Canyon. People do that today in big rubber rafts with maps and stop and scout. He does this um, strapped to a a chair, uh, which is lashed down to a wooden boat. And, uh, you know, as he says, what lies around the next bend, we know not. And then they would go off and, and have a look. But in the process of, of exploring the Grand Canyon in that way and an extensive exploration around the west, rest of the West, Powell came to know the, the land and the people, the Native people in particular of the West, in a way that I think you could argue really no other white American did at, at the time. And the consequence for him as the United States expanded was to recommend that we expand into the West in a way that was very different than, than we had in the East. Um, in the East, so let me back up for a minute. One of the ideas that, that he was very um, thoughtful about recognizing and popularizing was the notion that one of the major defining characteristics of the West is aridity. And the magic line really is about the 100th meridian. And the 100th meridian uh, bisects Texas, Oklahoma, up into the Dakotas. And generally, I mean, it's not a hard and fast line, but generally the 100th meridian divides lands to the east where it rains more than 20 inches a year and lands to the west of that where it rains, except for on the coast, less than 20 inches a year. And that 20 inches is kind of the magic number for 
and it's a, it's a weird term to use for dry farming, mm -hmm. meaning that you don't have to irrigate. East of the 100th meridian, you don't need to irrigate, but west of the 100th meridian, you absolutely have to. There's just insufficient rainfall for successful agriculture. And he was very concerned that the 1862 Homestead Act, which conveyed 160 acres pretty much at a very minimal rate, he was concerned that that would create a colossal failure in the West because 160 acres was way too much to farm because you would have to irrigate it, and it was way too little to ranch. So he said, we need to think completely differently about how we settle the West, and we need to settle the people where there is water. And so just as you said, uh, he drafted a map and, and presented a report to Congress in 1878 called a report on the arid lands um, something or another I can't remember it's a long title but the idea was he wanted to map the west to show where the water was mm -hmm. and he would settle the people there instead of in as you were suggesting square states that had no basis of uh, rationale on the actual landscape that was his plan. Needless to say, Western boosterism really didn't want to be patient and, and find out where we should settle. Yeah, and I feel like that is just one of many, many examples of how the, you know, the, the I guess the quest for profits overshadows any sort of kind of rational thinking. I mean, it seems like that's just the case time and time and time again. And Yet we always seem to look back and and say, oh, well, those people were actually right and we shouldn't have been chasing these profits like that. Um, and I'm not an anti-capitalist, but it's just – it's pretty amazing how we continue to continue to make the same mistakes ever since white people showed up out here. I mean is that an overstatement on my part? Well, I think the problem has always been that, that we tend to be very ambitious for ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, no matter who that is, whether it's, you know, European invaders or um, Americans, there tends to be a real ambition, particularly if you're going to participate in a market economy to do well for yourself. And unfortunately, doing well for yourself and long-term stewardship are not very compatible, actually. Um, and so it tends to be, well, I'm, I'm going to get what I can and then otherwise someone else will and i don't want to lose out on an opportunity here yeah the tragedy of the commons again it goes back to that it just continues to go back to that um i, I i'm just i love the book so much so i'm just i'm just drilling you on all these uh all these specific questions i hope i hope that's okay um so the, there was one part in there that i really love talking about the 1890s and how a lot of historians try try to avoid pinning a specific time period as being a linchpin or a, a linchpin or a, a point when things really changed. But by most standards, the 1890s was a big change in conservation. You know, our, a lot of the destruction of some of the, the animals was coming to a head, like bison, salmon, wolves. Um, the establishment of national forests was coming along. The You know, people were starting to look at conservation from a scientific perspective. And then you had artists like Remington and Russell coming to the forefront and, and kind of demonstrating the uniqueness of the landscape. Can you just give us a, a brief overview of that period and why that 
that 1890s was such an important um, time period for the conservation movement? Sure. So I think one of the things that had happened for the United States was that we grew really fast. Um, if you think about what the boundary, uh, the western boundary of the United States is in 1783, it's the Mississippi River. Within 20 years, we've more than doubled it in size with the Louisiana Purchase, and that puts our western boundary at the crest of the Rocky Mountains. And then, uh, and then, just 50 years from then, we're going to add all of Oregon Territory the Mexican session from the Mexican-American War, and the Gadsden Purchase. Within, you know, 50 years from the um, Louisiana Purchase, the United States extends from sea to shining sea. And that, that sense that, my gosh, you know, we're a remarkable nation. It was that manifest destiny. We have almost a God-given right to spread the, over the continent and expand our superior culture, institutions, etc. And there was a sense, I think, among uh, many Americans that, that there are no limits to anything. There's no limits to natural resources. There are no limits to what we can do, to what we can build, to who we can be as a, as a country. And that had fueled a kind of gung-ho expansionism and resource consumption that meant by 1890, there's a bit of a reckoning that has to happen. Um, we had seen the near destruction of bison almost completely extirpated from North America in a very short period of time, basically um, from the 1820s to about the 1880s, this species that once had numbered maybe as many as 30 million across the Great Plains was down to fewer than a thousand individuals. Um, a consequence of, of many complicated factors, um, hunting for the market, both by white hunters and native peoples, disease, drought, um, habitat destruction, all of those things had, had come together to, to make that happen. Same thing had happened with uh, trees. We thought we had unlimited forests and we had cut out all uh, above the Great Lakes region, and we were starting to do that in the Pacific Northwest. That was having a consequence on salmon. Their numbers were crashing by the 1890s. We had begun to hunt out wolves because they were predating on our cows and sheep. We had eliminated the grizzly bear. The state symbol on the California flag is gone. Um, as are elk and pronghorns and all kinds of animals. Just really sort of a great silence begins to extend across the landscape in terms of the animal species that are lost, but also in terms of, of just natural resources really being played out to the point where people could not ignore the destruction that had occurred. And at that point, you, you begin to have this national sense of, wait a minute, if this is what has made us powerful to this point, how are we going to continue as a nation into the 20th century if, if we don't have these things anymore? We need to shift our thinking. And that's really where conservation and preservation and those ideas begin to emerge. That's a perfect segue because that was going to be my next question was about the conservationist and preservationist. And I'm obsessed, almost weirdly obsessed with 
Theodore Roosevelt, and he, <laughs> my, yeah, it's getting it's getting a little out of hand. I got a I got a life size cutout of him and, and put it in my office the other day. <laughs> At least it's not in your bedroom. Man. <laughs> I don't know. That's actually a really good idea. I might uh, no. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, can you explain the difference between conservationist and preservationist? Because I think a lot of people think of TR and they think of this guy who was hanging out in Yosemite and loved nature for nature's sake, when in fact it was not that simple. He was kind of on the, the opposite end of the spectrum. Sure. So today we think of those terms, conservation, preservation, as almost really interchangeable with, say, environmentalism and those sorts of things. But at the turn of the 20th century, those two ideas had very unique meanings. Essentially, conservation advocated the wise use of nature, while preservation advocated the protection of nature from exploitation. And the way that played out was in people like Theodore Roosevelt, uh, conservation becomes a, a major um, effort on the part of progressive reformers, and Theodore Roosevelt certainly fits squarely within progressive reform in America. And the idea was that the federal government, which I know sounds uh, almost anathema to people in the 21st century, but the idea was that the federal government was very likely the best steward of the nation's natural resources. And both conservation and preservation embraced that idea. For conservationists, that meant organizing some of the federal government's resources to help better manage the nation's um, trees, water, etc. And so it's Roosevelt, for example, who creates in 1905 the United States Forest Service. We had begun setting aside forest reserves, concerned that we might be overcutting our trees um, in the late 19th century, but we didn't have a federal agency to manage those until 1905 to create the Forest Service. But it's a classic, at least initially, a classic conservation organization. And you can see that in something as simple as the department in which it's located. To this day, the United States Forest Service is located in the Department of Agriculture. Uh, trees are a crop. We're going to manage them as such. But we also began to protect national forests, not only for their tree resources, but because they were often the sources for the rare water that is in the West. Most of the, the major rivers of the West headwater in the mountains of the West where the trees are. And so by protecting the forests in those areas, you're also going to protect the watersheds that are so vital for living in the West. So that was one area where we certainly saw the federal government taking on a much stronger, bigger role in conservation. And one area where conservation and preservation certainly could overlap was in the protection of national parks. And preservation was the idea of, uh, well, I mean, lots of people were advocates for it, but the individual probably most closely associated with preservation is John Muir. Um, John Muir, founder of the Sierra Club, advocate for Yosemite. He was very much someone who spoke out for valuing nature, not so much in board feet of timber or acre feet of water, not these economic measurements, but more as an aesthetic value for the spiritual renewal that um, 
being in the outdoors could provide. And so you can see how these ideas could uh, be mutually reinforcing um, in, for example, the protection of Yosemite. Uh, Roosevelt and Muir worked very cooperatively to protect large portions of Yosemite as a national park. That's both conservation, preserving a resource like Yosemite for use by tourists, but it's also preservation, protecting a region for its sublime beauty. Where those two could sometimes clash often came in reclamation, which is the effort to create dams and water projects in the West. And for Roosevelt and Muir, nothing illustrated that more than their clash over the Hetch Hetchy Valley. Um, conservationists wanted to put a dam in the Hetch Hetchy Valley, which is in uh, Yosemite National Park. That's classic conservation, conserving a resource, in this case water, for future use by cities like San Francisco. But for someone like John Muir, a preservationist, damming and putting a reservoir in the middle of sublime Yosemite was a, a tragedy. And he lost that one. Muir lost that one. We built the O'Shaughnessy Dam. We flooded the Hetch Hetchy Valley. Some people said it may literally have broken his heart because he died before it was completed. Um, but those two ideas really began to uh, reshape the way people thought about our relationship to the natural environment, and in particular, the federal government's role in managing the nation's resources so that we would have resources. That's a wonderful explanation. And just to, obviously to keep it on TR for a little longer, but this, this is a serious question. I, I'm obsessed with the guy, and I have a hard time finding things that I can criticize about him. I mean, obviously he had a big ego. He talked too much, that kind of thing. But when you look at him from your perspective and knowing, you know, you're, you've, you can zoom out and really you have the full picture of the, you know, the settlement of the United States and all these different phases we've been, been through. What are, what are some critics? Do you have any criticisms of him? I mean, things that, you know, he's got this, this reputation as being the, the great conservationist, but, but what did he do wrong? Because, you know, he was a human. He's <laughs> he's not, you know, despite his best efforts to build his story, he he's not perfect. So from your perspective, what what did he do wrong, if anything? Oh, so, Ed, I mean, you know, I you're you've set me up badly <laughs> to, to knock down your hero. And no, I want it. I want it. Do it. To take a swing at your cardboard cutout. And, <laughs> but so I'll tell you what, here's here's what I would say to that. Theodore Roosevelt is, in some ways, the classic example of the major flaw in conservation, preservation, and environmentalism throughout the 20th and into the 21st century, and that's that it tends to be white and it tends to be elite. Mm -hmm. And Roosevelt was, I'm sad to say, no exception to that. Roosevelt um, was all about creating... Uh, wildlife refuges, national parks, and national monuments. But he did not ask the question that I tend to ask a lot in my book, which is at what cost, or maybe more precisely at whose cost. And the answer to that was often Native Americans. Yosemite had Native peoples living in it. Yellowstone had Native peoples living in it. Many of these places where we create wildlife refuges 
have native people who live there, um, have families there, hunt there, derive their livelihoods from there. And the nation, as it valued public lands and, and parks and things like that, didn't value those people who were there. We can't have a national park with Indians in it, so the Indians have got to go. And dispossession became a major, um, I think, black eye on conservation, preservation, and environmentalism. And it remains one of the areas where there's an awful lot of criticism. Um, Theodore Roosevelt was a major um, advocate for the 1887 Dawes Act, the Dawes Act, uh, which is also called the Allotment Act, divided up the reservations into individual plots of land and was designed to force Native assimilation uh, by forcing Native peoples to abandon kind of a communal identity and, and uh, take up individualized agriculture. Uh, Roosevelt praised that as, I, I think the quote is something like, a mighty pulverizing engine of Indian identity. Um, that, that's not, you know, that's not a good thing. Yeah. Um, and, and the same could be said in his foreign policy, and I realize that's not the West, but he was, that, that big stick that he liked to wield in foreign policy, he wielded very heavily uh, in Latin American countries, at the expense of, of peoples uh, in Latin America. I'm sure most people in the Philippines are not big fans of, of Theodore Roosevelt. So he was, he was certainly a man of his time. Um, and at the time, the ideas of the white man's burden had currency, and he very much bought into those. I, I love that and see that that's my whole goal with this thing, with this podcast, is to talk to smart people who are, who are coming with opinions based on real stuff. I mean, I, I want to hear that. And I think people who listen to this podcast may think that I'm like fuming out of the ears about somebody daring to question TR. But I love that because somebody asked me that the other day. They asked me kind of it seemed like they had maybe didn't have the glowing opinion of him that I have. And I mean, I want to I want to have an answer to that I want the realistic picture and all that makes complete sense. I mean, I guess the only the only thing I would think about that is when we were in Aspen and I was talking with Hampton Sides about Kit Carson. And, you know, he's such a controversial figure. And one of the things that Hampton said is that it's important to judge people within the context of the time that they lived and. You know, was there another option? Like, like, say somebody had TR had, had dropped dead, and a different, you know, say Woodrow Wilson or had come along, or Taft or whatever, come along a little, a little earlier. Do you think they would have pursued that same policy? I mean, do you think there was any anybody during that time period who would have pursued a, a more mindful or, or um, thoughtful policy with the Native Americans and with just? general conservation and reclamation and all that kind of stuff? Not who could have gotten elected by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's some of that. It, it, I absolutely agree with Hampton, and it's something I talk about in class a lot, that, that you can't judge someone by, by 2018 standards mm -hmm. when they were living in a much different time with much different values. But that doesn't mean we excuse them either. Yep. We have to be very realistic because we do sort of tend to pick the parts that we like 
and we celebrate those and we celebrate those in our time. We say, well, we like his conservation values. We like what he did for uh, natural resources and, and all of that. And, and we're equating those with modern values. And yet we have to understand that in his time, he was very much a product of his time, not as a way to excuse, but, but simply to better understand. Yeah, I agree. And I think we'd be, we'd be fools if we didn't w- try to learn lessons from the mistakes of these people in the past, no matter how well-meaning they may have been. I mean, everybody screws up and nobody's perfect. Um, so, well, since that, that drained all my energy. And so uh, talking about TR, and so <laughs> let's switch. I want to, I want to talk about you personally. Um, so you grew up in Arizona. Were, were you there? Were, did, was your whole childhood there in Arizona, like through high school or did you move around before that? Yeah, I grew up in the Phoenix area um, as the sportscasters on ESPN endlessly say down in the desert. Um, <laughs> And um, I grew to really love and appreciate the desert. It's, it's a part of the world that I feel really uh, at home and comfortable in. Having said that, it's also completely absurd that people live in Phoenix. <laughs> you know, my sister says, oh, I love Phoenix. And my response to that has been, no, you love air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and there's not enough water and there are too many people, but uh, it's there are orange trees and it's beautiful and um, so yeah I grew up there my whole life I was born and raised there and then I went to I uh, did my undergraduate at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff okay and as a as a kid or when you look back at your childhood were there any are there any specific experiences maybe in the outdoors or, or you know in your love of reading or anything that that would have that, that kind of laid the foundation for your current career well, you know, my folks were not uh, camping types. Uh, we, of course, had the ice chest, and we would occasionally go drive and eat bologna and cheese sandwiches on white bread with mayonnaise, which is nasty. <laughs> um, but I was always a kid who was outside, uh, which is one advantage one has in Phoenix. You can be outside in the middle of the winter running around barefoot. Yep. But I did have an experience when I um, was in high school and early college. I got to spend three summers at a Western horsemanship riding camp um, in, just outside of Prescott, Arizona, at a place called the Orm Ranch. And I spent three summers teaching kids from the East to appreciate the West. We would ride horses every day. Um, we we took hikes, we showed them all kinds of things, and we were living out kind of, we were living on an old ranch in um, sort of the plateau region of Arizona, and it was beautiful. And I, I loved that. I uh, went to school in, in Flagstaff, which was beautiful. And then uh, I got a degree in journalism and public relations because I didn't think I really wanted to to teach. My dad is a teacher and I thought, okay, so I can't be a teacher. And uh, that, that was a mistake. So then I ended up going to graduate school and got a degree in American studies and wasn't really sure what to do. So I took a, my first job was teaching at College of Eastern Utah, which is a two-year school in Price, Utah, mm-hmm. in the center of the state. And one of, I was the entire history department And one of the advantages I had was that I got to teach a class for the five years I was there uh, called Environmental Studies. 
and it had a classroom component to it. We would do readings and talk about ideas about nature and then take the students out into Utah. And so we would take them river running and backpacking and exploring all over Utah, especially southern Utah. And I fell in love with the state. I fell in love with the outdoors. And I fell in love with this idea of talking about how people and nature relate over time. And so once I did that, I knew I could go back, get my Ph.D. And and here I am. So during that time period, when you look back on it, were there any specific books or even you know individual mentors that you may have had that that you look back and think that really shaped my outlook or particularly books that, that other people that you could recommend that other people read? Well, so the book that made me realize that here's what I want to do. This is the, I, this is the way I want to wrap my head around understanding the past was uh, William Cronin's changes in the land. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an absolutely brilliant book. I still use it as often as I possibly can in class, and I get the same reaction from my students that I had. And what Cronin does in this book, Changes in the Land, it's called Indians, um, Europeans, Indians, and the Ecology of New England. No, Colonists, Indians, and the Ecology of New England. And the idea is, here's how Native people, and it's an East Coast book, But here's how Native people in various places were interacting with the land before Europeans come. Here's the value system that Europeans bring in, including market capitalism. And here's what transpires once these two groups start interacting. And his basic argument is that it becomes impossible for Indian people to continue to live as they had once this interaction begins to occur. And it's not necessarily a a purposeful thing that Europeans do, but it simply becomes impossible for Indian people to continue the way they have. They have, and they adapt and change and embrace new ideas uh, very much. There's there's discussion of agency there, but the change that happens as that consequence, uh, as a consequence of that interaction of, of two groups of people is so profound that that you really can't understand why things change without understanding that it's not about war it's not about politics it's about that that's really interesting i've never i've never heard of that book so i, I will definitely add it to the list and i'll have links to, to all these books in the in the notes on the webpage so people can look them up um and so PhD, how, how long did that take you to, to do? I mean, I've heard that that is just a, a massive endurance test. It is, but you know, um, I am a, I, I'm a classic student and I'm a real high achiever. And so, uh, I did it in four years. Oh, wow. I was yeah. here seven years. That's no yeah. joke. <laughs> no, I know. No, I'm, I'm quite aware of all my friends having done that, but uh, no, I did it before. And so when you were finishing that up, I would, I would get, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would guess you have two routes. You could, you know, kind of go on to the, the strictly the, or the mostly the research side and writing side, or you could go on the teaching side and you've, you've seen, seems like you've done a bit of both. And obviously with your book, you've, you've written some, you've spent a lot of time writing, but it also seems that you're a very committed teacher. And so can you talk about what, spoke to you for uh, about the the craft of teaching 
Sure. So I, I really, I, I grew up, my dad was a teacher, a high school English teacher, and uh, that's the profession my sister has gone into as well. Um, I resisted it as, as mightily as I could for as long as I possibly could. But what I realized was that if I just wrote um, for academic areas or something like that, I wasn't going to be able to make the kind of change that I really wanted to make. And I've often said that people care about what they know. And so my goal has always been to help people know more so that they care more. And that's the passion that I try to bring into the classroom. I, I tell my students, I don't want to teach you what to think. I want to teach you how to think. And then I want to expose them to as many different ideas, ways of thinking, different ways to come at a particular topic so that their brains are understanding that the world around them is really complicated and it always has been complicated. And the more we can embrace a complicated past, the more relevance it has for our present. I wish I had teachers like this. I told Dan the same thing. I don't, I don't remember having any college professors like y'all. <laughs> You know, and occasionally I, I sing in class and I tell jokes and yeah, so. Um, this is kind of a, a broad question, but are seeing these, these students coming through now, and it's crazy because I think a lot of them were probably born well after I was out of college, which makes me feel really old, but um, are are you optimistic about the the kind of the next generation that's coming through and these, these young adults that are going to be, you know, Another, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, they're going to be the ones in charge and making significant um, decisions about all these things we care so deeply about. Are you optimistic about things, given that you're on the front lines of educating these people? I wouldn't do this job if I weren't. Yeah. One has to be optimistic. And I feel like doing the job I do is part of what I hope will help these students become good leaders, good citizens. Um, thoughtful neighbors, that sort of thing? And the answer is yes. I think in, in many ways, this is a generation that's in college now that has the fewest cultural baggage problems that anyone has had before. They, they, don't, they aren't nearly so um, caught up in traditional ideas of, of, of race, of gender, of relationships, of um, family, and these are people who are are very comfortable being very fluid in a, a number of areas that have traditionally been kind of closed-minded. And I think that open-mindedness is is really refreshing and exciting. That being said, they don't vote, um, and I that worries me. I really if if I could just encourage uh, this generation to do anything, it would be to become more civically involved and, and um, you know, open their minds to the idea of so many people have given so much over time that we, so that we have the privilege of being able to vote that I think um, it, it's a disservice to history if, if you don't do your good do, duty as a citizen. I completely agree. I, I heard an interview with somebody the other day, and they were talking about these polarizing times that we live in. And 
the person was asking you, how do you change the mind of somebody that it just seems like they, they can't have their mind changed no matter what? And the person said, you don't don't waste time doing that. What you should spend your time doing is encouraging your friends to vote because the reality is you know, half the people don't vote. And so spend your time making sure everybody you know votes, and that's a much better use of, of time. Um, it's very, why, why don't they vote? What, what is that all about? Well, I think a lot of them truly believe that their vote doesn't matter. And I, I think also kind of sadly, and I don't know where this failing is happening, but a lot of them don't know the real basic nuts and bolts of how our system of government works. It shocks me that in a freshman level class on American history, I have to explain that there are three branches of government. Here's what each one is. Here's what they do. Here's how we vote. I mean, I have to do that. And I can see students taking notes furiously. Mm. So I don't know where we haven't been teaching that, but it's a little bit too late for me to have to be teaching that when they're 18, 19, 20 years old. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, to, I'm, I'm glad to know we've got folks like you educating these, these people because it's super important. Um, uh, in our conversations, both now and then when we were up in Aspen, you would, every now and then I'd hear you talk about running. So I, I, I gather you're a committed runner. I am. And uh, I, I don't run in races or anything like that. But um, if you've ever been to the Wasatch Front and, and Ogden, where I live, there is a magnificent trail system all along the foot of the Wasatch. The old lake bed, uh, the old Lake Bonneville lake bed levels created what are called benches. And they create these really spectacular running trails. And so it's very easy for me to just get up on one of these trails. It's on the public lands. And you can see out over the whole of the, the valley and uh, this time of year with the color in the any time of year, but the color in the leaves right now is is stunning. The air feels wonderful. And so, yeah, it's it's the way that I solve all the problems of the world. Yeah. Same for me. It's the it's the mental aspect that makes me run uh, a lot more than the, the physical. I mean, they're obviously related, but I don't know what I'd do if I weren't able to run. <laughs> My wife. Well, I feel more like I don't know what my wife would do if I weren't able to run. I'd drive everybody crazy. Um, and then one more one more question um, about the, the your adventures. Tell give me some examples of some of the adventures you've been on in the West because I know your husband is is quite an adventurer and and I know that uh, y'all have done some fun stuff together. Any any adventures top of mind that that come to your head um, that you could tell us about? Uh, well, let's see. I've had um, the good fortune when I was in uh, college. I got to work at uh, the Grand Tetons for a summer, oh, and wow. I worked at Denali National Park for a summer. And that meant in both cases that when it was my day off, I was able to just go into the parks and uh, got to really appreciate those parks in particular. Um, I've one of the, the great wonders I think of the West is rafting down the Green River through Desolation and Gray's Canyon. Um, that's not to be missed. Um, it, because water is so rare in the West, I think if you have the opportunity to do a river trip in the West, 
um, you should take it. it uh, this next summer, uh, my husband and I are going on a trip on the Hula Hula River, which is in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, never done that before, but I can't wait. It should be uh, amazing. Yeah, that will be amazing. Um, Alaska is just an amazing place. The, the scale of it is really hard to get your head around. It's just, it's insane. Um, so one more, one more kind of question about, about your work, and then we'll get into the, the quick final questions. But speaking of election season, um, you know, we're coming up on it. And one of the biggest issues that in my kind of core group of friends and, and colleagues that, that comes up is the public lands debate. And I know a lot of your, we, I know a lot of your work is around building, you know, the, the idea of building consensus on some of these issues and bipartisan issues. And for the most part, it seems like public lands is a bipartisan issue. And I think it's been demonstrated because you're bringing together groups that historically haven't seen eye to eye, you know, like hunter, you know, bird hunters and people from the Audubon Society are, are kind of coming together to, so you know, um, talk about their support for protecting these public lands. Can you just give us, you know, a little bit on the importance of public lands and the threat that, that they are currently under? So I think in many ways that public lands is one of the defining elements of what it means to be a Westerner. It's a real privilege that we enjoy here that I think a lot of people don't get to experience. And um, I would encourage you to, if, if, if we could put up a map, I would do that, but you can Google it easily enough. And, and it's just a, a map of the public lands of the West. If you Google that, you'll get this remarkable map that shows that uh, the 11 states of the West, uh, west of the 100th meridian, on average have more than half of their land mass devoted to the public lands. And east of the 100th meridian, it's often 1%, 2%, less than 1%. It is the real defining characteristic. And it is both um, something that brings us together. Uh, I, I was in um, Texas the other day, and in the airport, I saw an ad for the National Parks of Utah. And so it's, it's something that brings us together, but it's something that very much divides us, too. And here in Utah, we have seen something um, of this with the controversy over the Bears Ears National Monument. The Bears Ears National Monument, which is in the southern part of the state, was set aside by President Obama. And as you may or may not know, uh, President Trump has tried to severely um, remove, uh, severely limit what the size actually is by about 90% to shrink it by about 90% of what Obama designated. And that's been very controversial. And it's, it's, it speaks to why the public lands can be controversial. On the one hand, you have um, five native groups, not historically friendly to one another that nevertheless came together in a powerful coalition to support the designation of Bears Ears, a lot of local community people, environmental organizations, people like that. And in opposition to that, you have um, some of the ranching interests, wise use movement, um, extractive industries, and it's become, unfortunately, a political tug of war, too. It, it's been too hard to define a middle ground because that means betraying your party one way or the other. And that's been really unfortunate. I think one of the major misperceptions that a lot of people have is that 
when, for example, Obama designated Bears Ears um, at 1.3 million acres, people said, oh, it was a land grab. It was a federal land grab. No, it was not. Uh, it was simply a redesignation of lands that were already federalized, a combination of Bureau of Land Management and United States Forest Service lands. Nobody lost their homes. Nobody lost their private property. Not a single acre of that 1.3 million was acquired in that way. And so there's a lot of misinformation. And I think in some ways that's what feeds the, uh, the controversy and the conflict and so, again, you know, part of the reason to write a book like I did or to talk with people like you is to try and help people understand what is actually happening so that, that we can maybe more realistically find consensus. And Wallace Stegner had a great, great quote about the public lands. He said, Westerners live outdoors more than people elsewhere because outdoors is mainly what they've got. They don't have to own the outdoors or get permission or cut fences in order to use it. It is public land, partly theirs, and that space is a continuing influence on their minds and senses. It encourages a fatal carelessness and destructiveness because it seems so limitless and because what is everybody's is nobody's responsibility. It also encourages in some an impassioned protectiveness. The battlegrounds of the environmental movement lie in the Western public lands. That is great. What, where is that quote from? What? What? Uh, I was afraid you'd ask me about it. <laughs> I'll, I'll Google it. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to put it on my wall. I'm going to find that because that's uh, it's really great. That's a wonderful quote. Um, well, that I think that's a perfect way to to wrap up all this. Even though I may have to have you back because I've still got like I, I literally got to ten percent of my questions. So well, you can have me back anytime. I'd love it. Okay. Um, we will do that. Um, so let's go through these these questions, and then I'll let you get on with your weekend. Thank you again for taking the time to, to do this. I really appreciate it. What is your favorite all-time book about the American West, if you could only pick one or two? Um, okay, I'll give you two, because um, I can't resist a Stegner book. But I'm going to give you a different Stegner book than Beyond the 100th Meridian. I'm going to suggest where the bluebird sings to the lemonade springs, because it's a collection of uh, shorter essays by Stegner, and he touches on a huge variety of topics about the West. It's drawn from writings of his across his career, but there are some particularly lovely um, passages, one uh, in particular uh, called Living Dry, uh, but where he talks about how to, to live on the land. So I would say, where the Bluebird Sings to the Lemonade Springs by Wallace Stegner. And then um, if people want to understand water in the West, I think you'd have a, a great time reading Mark Reisner's Cadillac Desert. Both. Yeah, both. great. Actually, the, the first Stegner book, uh, nobody has ever recommended. I, I've never even I've never heard of it, which that's oh. awesome. I can't wait to read it. Um, so do you, what's your favorite book of all time? It doesn't have to be related to the West. Just is there one single book that's your favorite? Uh, that's hard. No, boy. Uh, no, I can't come up with a single favorite. Mine, up until about 20 minutes ago, mine was Rise of Theodore Roosevelt, but no more. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> just joking. It's still my favorite. You can't break me. Um, so do you have any favorite documentaries or films? Um, 
Yeah, so I'm a big Blade Runner fan. I was a fan of the original when it came out. I yeah. thought the new one was pretty good too, but I kind of love uh, Blade Runner. But if if we're thinking about the West, um, I would say it's very fun to watch Avatar as mm-hmm. a Western. Um, and a lot of people don't really think of it that way. But if you watch the film Avatar with how is this a Western in mind? It will change the way you see the movie. And especially, you know, don't spoiler alert here, but you know, the Indians win and that never happens. So, uh, I like that. I love Chinatown, especially if you read Mark Reisner's Cadillac desert, then you should definitely watch Chinatown. And then if you want to laugh at the West, I, I, Seth MacFarlane's A Million Ways to Die in the West is just one of the funniest things I've seen in a long time. <laughs> that is funny. Speaking of Avatar, that's one of my favorite movies. And I heard, and I don't know if this is true, but I read it somewhere that um, the director, I guess James Cameron, yeah. had a place in Crested Butte. And that, that the some of the fights with develop, development and the conservation issues that come up in and around Crested Butte are what inspired him to make that movie. I don't know if that's true. But I heard it, and it remind, and I remembered it. So, I think I think you're onto something there. I mean, I think that mindset was what developed that movie. Um, it's, well, I, I love it. You can figure out, you know, who's the bad sheriff, and yeah, the whole thing. It works. It's really kind of fun to to think of that movie as a, as a western. So we talked a little bit about um, your hobbies, running, and just generally spending a lot of time outdoors. Do you have any funny? activities that you enjoy that may surprise people like for example i learned how to knit uh, a few years ago that's very fairly surprising awesome. i'll be expecting a little something <laughs> for winter um so i don't know if it's not funny but i keep bees and that has been a very satisfying connection to the natural world and also heartbreaking sometimes too it's one of the reasons i felt compelled in the epilogue to write about bees because of my own personal experiences. Yeah. That's another reason for people to read the book. I didn't know, I, I didn't fully understand the significance of bee significance of bees. So that's another, another reason to buy the book immediately. Um, what is the most powerful experience you've ever had in the outdoors? And that could be a fun experience, a funny experience, scary experience. Is there any that stick out in your head as just being a, a super powerful time? Well, uh, you know, I find being out in nature generally pretty euphoric, but I will say that the um, most traumatic experience I've ever had also occurred in nature. A couple of friends and I were rafting the Snake River below Hell's Canyon Dam, and we scouted a pretty big rapid. We were in a little 13-foot rubber boat, and we scouted a rapid, went back, and in between the time we had scouted and that we ran... The dam, it was summer and the dam had increased its output of water to make more electricity for the air conditioners in Boise. And so by the time we hit the rapid, it had changed and it dumped our little raft into a hole, a very, very big hole. And uh, I got Maytagged in the hole and came up under the raft multiple times and I had one more time to to come up or else I was not going to come up again. And I fortunately came up outside the raft that time. Oh, that is some scary stuff. Yeah, that's my nightmare. 
Yeah, that's scary. That's super scary. Water, people just, unless you've been through something like that, people don't understand the power of water. It is it is some scary stuff in the wrong situation. Um, where's your favorite location in the West, if you had to pick one one place? Coyote Gulch. And where, where is that? Um, that's down south in Utah in the Escalante country, which is some of the most beautiful country in the whole world. If you've never been to the Escalante Grand Staircase, man, you have not lived. You need to put it on your bucket list. And Coyote Gulch may be the most beautiful place there. That's great. I have not been there, so I need to get there. Um, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, well, so I'm going to twist that just slightly. The best thing I ever learned came from a friend of mine, a, a Western historian named Hal Rothman. And Hal um, contracted and died of ALS at age 47. And the lesson that he taught was that you have to live every day, every moment, wide open and fully in, uh, experiencing the world around you and appreciate everything you get every single day because you just never know when you might not get it and you'd be really sorry if you didn't appreciate it. That's great advice. Um, and that may fit in with the last question, but if you could make a request of the people who listen to this podcast and as people who love the American West in one way or the other. So or you could either make a request, offer some advice, offer words of wisdom, is there anything kind of parting words? Sure. So one of the questions I get asked a lot recently, unfortunately, is so where is there hope? How is how can you be optimistic when things seem so dark? And the answer, I think, really lies in becoming involved locally in something you really care about. Um, things may be frustrating at the national level. But there are a million projects that really need passionate people to get behind them. And so if you love animals or a particular animal, find a group that um, is working on their behalf. If you love a place or you want to see a place set aside or you want to help a particular group, then by all means, um, find out more. People care about what they know. Find out more and then get involved. It, you just it's. It's something that no one ever regrets. Well, this has just been great, um, and I'm not—I'm serious about a part two because I've—I've I've got so much, so many more questions. But thank you, um, first of all, for talking. Thank you for all the work you do. Thank you for writing such a great book. Um, it's just—it's all just perfect, especially for the people who listen to this podcast. Um, how can people find out more about you? You're noticeably absent from social media, which is probably why you're able to write such good books because you're not playing around on that thing. Um, how can people connect with you? So I'm at Weber State University, and uh, I'm the chair of the history department. So people can, if they don't remember um, how to get in touch with me, that's the easiest way to find it is just to go to Weber State University, that's W-E-B-E-R, and uh, the history department, and you'll see me on the faculty page there. And people are welcome to shoot me an email and let me know if they had some thoughts or questions about the book that they want to share. I would, I would love to hear from them. Well, this was great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, it's Ed again. 
Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.